Um, Romans chapter 8. Again, this, this really advances, this, uh, this progresses into some great, great gospel hope as we progress in our study of Romans, we're going to really begin studying what is meant at verse 28 in chapter 8. We're going to be considering good for those who love God, which is straight out of the verse. Good for those who love God. Verse 28 says actually, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those called according to his purpose. And from here at 28, and and as he goes forward here, we're going to read a further argumentation here in the in the book of Romans, an argument, a long argument that would compel you to believe God and the gospel. There are specific points and details of the gospel that you must believe and you must exercise faith. You must practice faith in walking with the Lord and trusting the Lord Jesus. And one of the Subjects that's come in here in, in chapter 8 is your being led by the Spirit. Are you led by the Spirit? Do you walk with the Spirit? And Paul is going to argue as, as he um, writes what we know is inspired revelation. We know that this, uh, this letter isn't just some random piece of ancient writing here. This is inspired of God so that we would know what to believe and, and how to believe. So this is going to continue a, an argument that is to compel you by your own powers of reason. And that's what an argument is. An argument is to reason with you and to compel you by, by the power of reason that you should agree with this and then conform both your mind and your life to to meet up with what you are being compelled to believe and understand. And so with that being said, I want to remind you again of the big picture. This is going to be much quicker uh, review of big picture, but Romans chapter 8 requires you to, to see these items in view as you're considering what he is arguing for. And so in, in both chapters 3 and 4, the universal guilt of men under God's condemnation of sin. All of sin, it says in chapter 3. And also he refers to, to justification in small part, but chapter 4 reveals God's righteousness that is given to sinners by faith. Three and four lays this this groundwork. Chapter five speaks in much detail about benefits of justification 
This doctrinal word that means a sinner made right in the courtroom sense before God. That's what justification is. Just as if I would not sinned is how God's court sees the sinner who has put his trust in Christ, truly believed and trusted in the Savior. Justification is this legal standing before the eternal king. Chapter 5 speaks about the benefits of justification that is imputed righteousness. Remember, David said, Blessed is the man to whom God will not impute sin. It's because when you put your trust in Christ, he imputes to you, the believer, the righteousness of Christ. And chapter 6 says, don't continue to sin. Shall we sin that grace may abound? No. May it never be. Don't you know you died with Christ in your baptism? You're made righteous by faith with the risen Christ. Your death with Christ has joined you with him. There is a union that has been created between you and the Savior when you died with Christ. So in that union with him, his death has become your death. The acceptable sacrifice of his has become your sacrifice. You join to the Lord Jesus. Don't continue in sin. Chapter 7, you're wed to a new groom is the language there. When you died to that bond that you used to have, the law and sin, you died. The death made it legally and legitimately possible for you to relate to a new relationship. Not in the law. (coughs) Not your debt to death. You know, the sinner's debt is death. The wage of sin is death. But if you have died with Christ, you've been released from that debt because it's been paid. It, the, the death death is satisfied if you die with Christ. And you have been bound to put in union with Christ, if that is you. If you have died your sin death, if you've been bound to Christ, then you have been wed to a new groom, released from this law. And then, therefore, in chapter 8, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. There's a few chapters of Romans in a, in a three-sentence summary. Tiny bit of hyperbole there, but that's a really compact version of, of what we have been looking at and thinking about in, in Romans to this point. And the contrast between spirit and law is, is always being made known here in Romans, but becoming more prevalent here in Romans chapter 8. The contrast between spirit and law. And the Christian is living out his believing. That is, belief wasn't a static moment that happened and ended. Belief is like the day of your birth. 
faith in Christ at initial faith is the beginning of faith. It's the beginning of a life in Christ, right? And so what is being argued or what is being shown plainly in Romans 8 is that the Christian who has been indwelt by the Spirit is led by the Spirit. By the newness, in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. And you remember the repeated uh, idea that, that he raises some will make the mistake. Well, that means that, that law has no bearing on me now. And so when he asked that question, should we continue in sin, that God's grace can, can increase? No, he, he never says that you, your, your death to the law has released you to be free to sin. It has never meant that. It has never said that. But your living and believing and walking by faith is a life that is led by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, by the Spirit. And God helps the Christian, he's said to us in Romans chapter 8. He helps us. He's given privileges to us as believers. One of those privileges is kind of... Uh, summarized in the fact that you're called an heir if you have trusted in Christ. One of the privileges of believing in the Lord Jesus and having become a Christian is that you are an heir, joint heir with Christ. What does Christ own that you have become a joint heir with? What does he own? Everything. Do you, do, you, do you get some small sense of what the Word of God is meant to convey to you when He says you've become a joint heir with Christ? What is the point of even saying that? If not to make you realize you have been given the greatest privilege of any creature on earth if you have been made a joint heir with Christ. It is unthinkable that we have been made rich like that by virtue of your faith in Christ. This is what happens to the person who has begun his walk and his life as a Christian. Not only have you been made a, an heir and a joint heir, but you now have a relationship between the Creator that is more accurately described as a father-son relationship, a, a parent-child. By the Spirit who is indwelt the believer, the believer now, by the power in the, in, in the conviction of the Spirit, you can and do cry out, Abba Father, which is Daddy, Daddy. Your, your relationship to this one is a father who's the owner and the wielder of all power and authority, that you are now in a child-father relationship with. This is the nature of the reality of the Christian life that has been indwelt with the Spirit of God. These are privileges of the Christian who now is loved by his God, the way a son is loved by his father. 
But what we touched on last week and what I began to help you understand last week is that this believing, the, the, the faith that is held out to a person who is contemplating the claims of the gospel, as you, as you get in your mind what Paul has been sharing to us here in the gospel, there's at least two difficulties that I believe that he raises for us to think about. And number one, in trusting God to provide justification through Christ, in, in that requirement of you to say, okay, the Lord Jesus is my justification. He is how I am going to be received and accepted before God. This seems to go against the witness of the law. And that's what we were talking about predominantly last week. The law says... He who does these will live by them. You will live by keeping of the law. And, and indeed, in breaking the law under the old covenant, if you're found to be a lawbreaker, what is the punishment for murder, for blasphemy, for these sins? Death is the punishment for these sins. And you know what? These things are still sins. If you blaspheme God's name... You're held accountable for that. You, you can't use God's name like any other noun. His name is hallowed. His name is above all names. So we, we can't make this mistake, but the, the Jews who are hearing the gospel claims are being told and have been told, you will not be justified by keeping the law. And so they are left with the claim of the gospel that the Lord Jesus is our justification. And so they're like, well, is it by the law or is it by Christ? If it's by Christ, that means we can't rely on the law for justification. We can't pursue the details of, and some of the things we mentioned last week would be like circumcision and feasts and, and daily obligations and requirements to various multitude laws the Jews had to keep in order to stay in God's favor. And so when, when Paul is teaching them, Christ has become your righteousness and you cannot rely on the law for justification. No one will be justified by works of the law, he says. And I, I, I think we're seeing a tension appearing in the book of Romans, in particular for the Jew, that if I stop relying on the law, God will get mad at me. God will judge me for not keeping these aspects of the law. And that's why he repeats, don't depend on the law, don't sin, trust in Christ for your righteousness. But this is a difficulty in the gospel for this group of gospel hearers. Most could not understand what we saw in, in, in Romans 4, where it speaks of Abraham's justification by faith. What does it say in, in Romans chapter 4? It says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Try to put my finger on the verse for you. Five to eight speaks about David's righteousness. 
Here it is. It's verse 3. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. This line of Romans chapter 4, this aspect of Romans chapter 4, and in particular, teaches you and I for sure. Don't get me wrong. This, this shouldn't exclude your hearing and your understanding. But as the, as the Jew hears Abraham and David say these things, he's like, how, did, how could they be justified without keeping the law? And Paul insists, and the gospel insists, your righteousness, your standing before God as righteous, which is the only standard that will get you into eternal life. Righteousness, perfect righteousness, is by faith. And no man will be declared righteous by works of the law. The Jewish man hears this, and some legalistically minded non-Jewish people, but primarily Jewish people hear this, and, and it's very difficult to understand how can I get to God righteous without carefully keeping the tenets of the law. So that's a difficulty here in this gospel message. There's a second one that we want to consider just for a moment. Those who trust in the Lord Jesus and, and believe in the Lord Jesus are led by him. Romans is referred to that. Multiple verses all over the New Testament refer to it. In other words, if you have trusted Christ, you are a servant of Christ. He is your master. You walk with the master. The master is in the process of teaching us how to speak. How to think, how to respond when we've been offended. What's our work ethic? What kind of a father or mother are we? What kind of a man or a woman are we? What is entertaining to us? What is repulsive to us? These are things that become part of our nature, part of our manner because of who our Savior is, who is our master, who are we walking with, who is feeding us, who is teaching us. Now, this is a difficulty in the gospel, in the gospel message, because those who have a new master will suffer persecution and will suffer difficulties of a multitude of kinds because of who your master is. One of the phrases we would use from the Gospels is, is called counting the cost of discipleship. What is the cost of discipleship? What are the words that the Lord Jesus frames the cost of discipleship in? What is it? Well, one of, one of the phrases that the Lord would speak to his disciples is, is, are you able to bear the cross that I bear? Pick up your cross and follow me, is the phrase that the Lord Jesus used. What does that mean? When the Lord Jesus says, pick up your cross and follow me, what does that mean? What is a cross? What is a cross? It is the way someone dies. This is the way someone is put to death, a miserable, suffering death. Are you willing to die to yourself in your pursuit of Christ? Are you willing to die to yourself in your pursuit of Christ? 
Who's the master? You or Christ? Cost of discipleship is, is, is a phrase that we say, look, following the Lord Jesus doesn't mean you, you're going to go to heaven when you die and, and whatever you want between now and whenever that day arrives. It, it means you walk with the Lord. It means you're the servant of the Lord. You remember the parable of where two different men built houses? Where the, the, the first guy built his house on what? Sand. And the implication is, is, is that houses with sand foundations are super easy to make. You get a fast house. You get a labor-less house. Less labor in making that house. That's an easy way, right? The other guy built a house on stone. Have any of you ever made a stone foundation before? I haven't. Sounds like hard hard work, especially compared to sand. I'd rather shovel the sand and, and make a sand foundation much quicker, much easier. You can move it a handful at a time. You know how big the rocks are underneath Solomon's temple? You could probably fit two of them in this room. Huge stones. What's the point? What is the cost of discipleship? You whom the Lord would say, come and follow me. What does the Lord mean when he says that? He means follow me. He means you're not your own boss. The Lord is the Lord. That's why his name is Lord, you know that? Lord, master, comes from a Greek word kurios, which literally means master. Occasionally, the, the word in Greek is despotes. Have you ever heard of a despot before? A despot is the kind of person we don't like to be in charge because they're in ultimate, total, complete charge. The Lord is the master. And when he asks someone to follow him, he's the master. The second difficulty we're speaking of here when it comes to trusting Christ is this. In following the Lord Jesus Christ, in walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, there are many who see the aspects of following him and being led into suffering and persecution as something that they don't want. This is a difficulty to the gospel. It's an obstacle to the gospel, isn't it? It's a reason why many will not follow Christ. You and I, you and I as, as, as men and women who consider the claims of the gospel come back to the beginning of chapter 8 where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. In other words, there is a great offer of relief and hope in Romans chapter 8. Relief, hope, joy even. No condemnation for those who are in Christ who do not walk according to flesh, but according to spirit. We should long for and be able to rejoice in our hearts at this great hope that is offered to men and women in the gospel. And at verse 28, where we are really start to focus in today advances the argument 
for you to resist at the very least the two complications of the gospel I just mentioned to you. The two complications. Okay? One, totally trust Christ for righteousness. Two, trust Christ even if it means suffering and persecution. So verse 28 is going to continue to heap up argument. Why? How? Is it indeed truly so? 814 814 said as many as are led by the spirit these are the sons of God and and what's the point the sons are the blessed ones the sons are the privileged ones the sons are the ones God is helping the sons are the ones who can open eternal life the sons are heirs and joint heirs We're reading arguments for faith that does indeed truly trust Christ for these things. So in other words, believe him, submit to him, be led by him. That's what the point of the argument would mean. And so while faith will never mean that you're going to live without fears or that you would live without uncertainties or without persecutions, but it does mean, and he's touched on these things, it does mean you know where to direct your hope. It does mean you know where to direct your fear. It does mean you know what to do when you're feeling a little wobbly in your knees and you're not sure that you really want to trust him because it's going to be so scary and so intimidating. Christians... People who have been born by the Spirit, Christians, look to God's promises. We look to God's Word. And we let these things frame what we think and how we behave. The the argument at Romans 8.28 is going to compel you to trust, even though one or both of these two things I've just mentioned are threatening against you. He's going to do that in what I thought was very, very uh, helpful. Look at Hebrews. Um, That says 3, but I bet you it's 13. Let's look at Hebrews 13. is 3.12. Now remember, gospel claims, a gospel charge, which we're going to read here in Hebrews 3 in a second, is a charge for who you believe and where you are going to submit in terms of of where he's going to lead you. Believing him means he is leading you. And there are always obstacles to your being led. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews addresses this 
concern to the Hebrews. It's the same issue to the Hebrews from verse 12. So Hebrews 3.12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Now, do you see how that's walking away from being led by him? You see how belief in him isn't knowledge of his existence. Belief in him is going where he leads you. And what he warns here in Hebrews 3 is, Beware lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Keep reading with me. Verse 13. Exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. There's Christian fellowship there. That's how Christians speak to each other and encourage each other. We say, follow the Lord. Don't follow the world. Follow the Lord. Trust the Lord. Okay? Finally, verse 14, he says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, is in the rebellion. And there they're referring back to a time in the Exodus where the same problem was the promise of the Jews who would not be led by him. They didn't want to go where God was going to lead them. So this issue of being led where God would lead you because he is the master. Because it is what the Spirit does. The Spirit is leading His people. These arguments that we're looking at in Romans 8, where we're picking up there in verse 28, where He says, And we know all things work together for good to those who love God. We know all things work together for good for those who love God. This is an extension of that argument. In other words, follow Him. Trust Him for justification. Trust Him to lead you through persecution and hardship, even if you fear it. Now read verse 28. And we know all things work together for those, work together for good to those who love God. This is an extension of that argument. Do this. Trust God in this way. Frame your faith and practice your faith in this way. You know, read with me again. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. The threatenings against faith are constant. And the gospel here is going to encourage you to believe the claims and the leading of Christ in the gospel, even in the face of these things that are difficult and hard. So we're going to read this promise. It's good for those who love God. This is a promise. The gospel joins the Christian to Christ for righteousness. Okay? The, the gospel substitutes your unrighteousness for righteousness when you put your trust in Christ, okay? It also, I don't know the right word, but it, it also puts you in the service to Christ. The person who has trusted him has become his slave. 
One of the New Testament words we, we say many times is the word doulos, which means slave. Christian has become a servant, has become a slave to the Lord Jesus. And the gospel, big word gospel, big general word gospel, the gospel compels by both threats and promises. You know that, right? The gospel sometimes holds out things for you that sound like irresistible and you want them. The gospel the gospel compels by promises that sound wonderful and glorious to you. And sometimes the gospel compels you with threats. Chastisements or 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 the negative ramifications of not believing in and trusting Christ is what? what? What is the threat for not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? Condemnation and the wrath of God. The gospel would compel you by that threat. This horrible threat of, of fire and suffering for those who would put their trust in Christ met on this end by the love of God and eternal life and friendship with the Father. The threat drives you to the hope of, of glory in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this promise here in 8.28 where it says, all things work together for good to those who love, love God. You see how that is a compelling promise offering something that is helpful and hopeful to the Christian? It's something that offers hope. It's something that offers perseverance. Motivation. It offers you hope. But look how he continues the thought at verse 28. We know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then the next word in my Bible says for. For. Now, that's an argument word, right? It, it, it's, it's a logical word, okay? All things work together for good. To those who love God, for, what's he about to do? He's about to give us a reason. Or in other words, why is that so? Why is that true, Paul? He's saying the Christian who is walking by faith with this Lord in this spirit, this person, even if persecution comes, even if hardship comes, even if there are unwelcome things right in his path, what the Spirit says in Romans 8.28 is all things work together for good to those who love God. In other words, even if you see these things as landmines, and his horrible threats against you, what he's saying is, is all things are going to work together for good to those who love God. In other words, keep walking in this path. All of these things will work together for good. For, he's going to tell you why. You understand how he's arguing with you. He's reasoning with you. Why should you believe the gospel even if it means persecution and suffering. Even if it means suffering with Christ. Why? This is the question he's answering. And this is how he, he, he alerts us to that he is answering this question in verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he says, 
It says, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Is that what your Bible says? He predestined them to become conformed in the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. You see how he's going to make men and women to be conformed to the image of the perfect son, the sinless son, the only begotten son. He's going to make those ones into that image. In other words, they, they, that they could be no more pleasing to the Father than to be in the image of this son. Now keep reading just a little bit that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, he says in verse 33, what does moreover mean? And, or also, or even. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. These are sometimes referred to as, as five unbreakable links in a golden chain. These five words that begin with the foreknowledge of God. So this is why it's true. In other words, all things work together for good to those who love God. For, and then these five words, foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, and glorification. Now, do you get the argument? You get the argument? All things, servant of Jesus Christ, work together for good for you who love him. All things work together for you you he foreknew. He predestined you whom he predestined, he called you whom he called. He justified and you whom he justified, he glorified. You get the argument. I'm not sure you do. It's a tricky argument. Are you frustrated with Paul because his arguments are often a little bit challenging? They are. His, his arguments are sometimes a little bit hard to follow. And from what I understand, they're even harder to follow. In Greek, you have these run-on sentences with no periods, no breaks between the words. We will... I, probably next week we're going to talk in a little bit more detail on, on foreknowledge and, and predestination. I don't think we're going to have a lot of time to deal with it this week. But let me comment on this promise. The, the promise and, and the nature of this promise and how it's being reinforced. The, the things that a Christian considers bad, like maybe persecution, Christian persecution, Christian suffering, things that you would prefer to avoid. These things 
you want to avoid that the gospel, the Holy Spirit, will lead you into them. They will come to the Christian. All who are godly in Christ will face tribulation, persecution, and suffering. This promise means that the things you consider bad or the things that you would like to avoid, these things you might even consider are evidence that God isn't with you anymore. When you're encountering suffering, when you're encountering difficulty that you think is unfair or that is too much to bear, maybe they're putting someone very close to you to death for their faith in Christ. And you can't bear the, the fear of it. And it seems like God has abandoned you. And if that were to happen in our lifetimes, we wouldn't be an isolated generation. It has happened over and over again to people who are followers of the Lord. The promise says that all things, even things like that, work together for good to those who love God. The promise says that the worst Things, the hardest things, the least favorable things for you who love God will work together for good. Now that's a promise to hold you in your hard and difficult moments of faith. Because when you and I are enduring something that we feel is maybe unendurable, or unwelcome, when we are suffering that, when we are experiencing that, if you will remember that God's word has promised. His word says, read it, underline it in your Bible. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a promise meant to sustain you on a certain path. Do you see that? Your flesh experiences a moment of suffering and persecution. And we've watched documentaries on, on the Reformers. We've watched documentaries on Bible translators. We've, we've studied many of these things. And when we've read about people having their heads removed, being burned alive, family put to death, this is a promise that is meant to Keep you on a path with your eyes focused, not on the threat. We may, we may stand now on the evening or, or, or on the dawning of a day where safe, easy Christianity is not your promise. Do you realize that? And if you deny the Lord, if you walk away from the Lord because you're too afraid or because you have not been prepared to believe in him and to trust him through tribulation, then, you're, then your faith is unprepared. It's not a biblical faith. This is teaching you and I what is our faith to be made of when those moments come. Maybe just a simple moment in your life or maybe a moment in the history of the world. 
if persecution against Christians starts next week or next month or next year. This is the kind of verse that reminds you, that teaches you the gospel has anticipated this. And it is a promise. And it is a promise with an amazing, an amazing confidence-building argument that follows it. It says you can trust that this is exactly, this is completely going to work for your good for you who love God. For, for. That's how the argument develops. Those that he foreknew. I want to read you a little bit more here and we'll close this morning. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11 and we'll just read a couple more parallels there in Hebrews with, with what I believe the Spirit is teaching Christians to, to build up our faith with. So what we're doing here is we're building up our faith We're learning how to speak faith one to another. When when you desire the thing that your flesh is pleading with you to desire, in other words, if, if you live your faith out loud, if you practice your faith and someone threatens to take your life away or if somebody threatens to take your job away, because you believe in the claims of the gospel and you believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, when you feel the threat of the thing that says you are going to lose because you have believed, you're going to get sold short, you're going to get killed, you're going to have less if you actually believe. Listen to what it says, Hebrews 11.24. And I'm going to just tell you on the front end, Romans 8 is teaching you to know what Moses knew. Romans or Hebrews 11:24 says, "By faith Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter." Who's Pharaoh's daughter? Well, it'd be like being the president's daughter. Why would Moses refuse to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Keep reading. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What are the sufferings that Moses suffered? Jewish sufferings. He suffered the things that the people of God were suffering. What was his option? What could he suffer instead? And I put suffer in quotes there. You didn't see it. Where where could he have gone instead? The palace. He was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So when when suffering is, is, is right at the front door for Moses, as Moses is contemplating, If he's going to stand with the Jews, if he's going to speak for God, he could say, no way am I going to speak for God. If I do, I'm going to 
I'm going to have a life as miserable as they're going to have. But I could go hang out in mom's suite. He's had the, the, the nicest food in the world, the nicest clothes in the world, the best servants in the world. Isn't this amazing what, what Moses faced? Do you see how Moses had his eyes on something else? You see how Moses' faith wasn't built on satisfying the passions of his flesh for the day or for the week? You see how Moses was able to see something else? Something else was compelling the faith of Moses. Look how it keeps reading. And this you might find hard to believe. But listen to the word of God in verse 26. It says, Moses was esteeming the reproach of Christ. Did you know Moses knew of the Christ? What does esteem mean? Value. Value. He valued the reproach of Christ more than the riches and the treasures of Egypt. For he looked to the reward. Romans 8.28 is teaching you and I that we look ahead to the age to come. We look ahead to the age of come. It's going to go on to this argument for those whom he foreknew. He also predestined those he predestined. He called those he called. He justified those he justified. He also glorified. That is the argument that makes this so. I want you to see Moses. Moses knew this. Moses lived like this. Look also at verse 35, Hebrews 11, 35. This is what other men and women did by faith. It says, women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony, through faith, did not receive the promise. And what that means is, is they, they lived in faith and died without having in their hands what was promised yet in the gospel. Why? Because they believed the promise. They believed that to be led by the Spirit and to live by faith in Christ, to walk by faith, is what it meant to believe. That's why they lived in caves. That's why they had shabby clothes instead of nice clothes. That's why they were willing to live and endure hard lives. We will go into those terms that I said we would go into next week, but I just want to show you that this is what the argument means. Look at verse 31. Okay, look at verse 31. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. 
All things work together for good to those who love God. Verse 31, he says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What the argument will show, and what I will show you next week, what the argument shows is that God could not be any more for you. He is for his sons. And those five words that I mentioned there are the meat of that argument. That's why it's true. All things work together for good to those who love God. And if God is for you, who can be against you? What can be against you? This is, this is the general thrust of this argument. Verse 32 kind of puts the, the final emphasis on, on the greatness of the statement that says, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, that is, put him to the cross. God did not spare his son. God put his son on the cross for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? In other words, the greatest power and favor that there could be for you who are called sons of God who are heirs and joint heirs of Christ walk and live by faith don't live according to the flesh trust the Lord Jesus be led by the spirit live your faith out loud speak it practice it because all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Do you know his purpose for you in your life? Do you know it? Do you know he has a purpose for you? Boy, understanding how it is we walk before him and how we're led by his spirit, how he accomplishes works. We will um, we'll finish this argument next week, and I, I trust that you'll... Maybe take some time and look over this a little bit more uh, this week, too. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord, for the certainty of your favor, for the greatness of your favor for those who think about the claims of the gospel, who, who understand what it would mean to follow you, Lord. Oh, how I pray that you would diminish fear and and skepticism in the minds, hearts of our flesh. May we, may we see and anticipate your great, great glory and, uh, and with joy pursue you, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.